When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. John Wertheim, it's this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. It is Wednesday in the U.S., Thursday in Australia, but we don't have to do that conversion anymore. The 2021 Australian Open is in the books. And to wrap up the tournament and spin the tennis calendar forward in this crazy season, I'm joined by Jamie. Jamie, nice to uh, be in the same time zone as you for the first time in a while. How are you? I'm good. How's it going? Welcome back. Thank you. I'm uh, Honestly, it's not really jet lag per se i'm still a little off from having uh woken up at 3 30 a.m eastern uh 12 30 pacific time to watch these finals um which we can can talk about that going forward i think this is a uh part, part of what makes the australian open fun to follow from the united states but also a bit problematic uh at least in terms of the broadcast is just the fact that 99.9 percent of uh the United States is asleep while these matches are going on. Uh, but why don't, why don't we just jump right in? Um, the first major of 2021 was a weird one. It's in the books. I hope the uh, Tennis Australia staff is catching up on uh, some sleep. They deserve uh, a round of applause, a beer, and a week on a bench, a week on a beach. But um, I, the one, one thing I did not hear was people saying, boy, they never should have taken this risk. Uh, it would have been better off if we hadn't held this event. And uh, I think we talked about this a few weeks ago. Um, pr- predictably, hard quarantines and bad Uber Eats and Bernard Tomic's girlfriend uh, washing her own hair, that all sort of molted like, uh, like snakeskin. And we were left with Novak Djokovic and Naomi Osaka winning majors, which seemed like a pretty normal place to be on the final weekend of, uh, of the first major of the year. Definitely. Uh, I totally agree. I think... All in all, beyond the, as always, like you said, the strange and difficult to watch time zone and and broadcast times, um, it was 
the tournament sort of ended up as as one might have predicted. Definitely in the case of the men's side with, with Novak Djokovic. I mean, nine Australian Opens, as uh, Medvedev called it, or called called him, as well as the rest of the big three, cyborgs in the best way possible. Um, I mean, it's it's incredible. And I think, you know, he Medvedev is, is part of that next-gen, younger-gen generation. But even he said, you know, I'm... I'm 25 years old, and to win nine Australian Opens, I would need to win every year until I'm 34. And he kind of said, you know, I'm, I'm confident, I believe in myself, but come on, that's a little crazy. And so just puts it into perspective, and it's really interesting to hear a huge, big-time player on the men's side to have that sort of perspective about Djokovic and, and the big three. If he were to do that, just keep, you know, if we play along with this silly hypothetical and he wins every Australian Open until he's 34 years old, he would still be at only half the hall of Novak Djokovic's overall majors and, of course, would be less than half of of Federer Nadal. I think we are in for a serious reset in terms of tennis math. I mean, there's one male player under the age of 30 that's won a major right now, and that's... Dominic Team, who won his when Nadal didn't play, Federer didn't play, and, and Novak Djokovic uh, was defaulted. Um, yeah, it's going to be I – mean, we, can, we can jump ahead to Osaka in a bit. Uh, people talking about, well, well she won double-digit majors. Um, we are in for a major sort of math recalibration when, uh, when these three titans leave because they're winning everything in sight. And – we're going to go back to the days when a player winning three or four, you know, Jim, Jim Courier won four majors and had a great career, got to number one, was a no-brainer Hall of Famer. Um, that's where we're going to revert to the mean pretty soon here. And uh, pe- people going to tennis matches and expecting to see players win double-digit majors are going to be disappointed. Um, what, what did you make of that final? I mean, going into them, I, I think it was – one of the reasons it was a weird match, I think, to a lot of us was, you know, Medvedev had come in on this crazy win streak. He had absolutely blown out his quarterfinal and semifinal opponents. He beat Djokovic the last time they played. I think with the odds makers, which, um, you know, which I always say is not one guy with a cigar making a prediction. I mean, the odds makers reflect what the betting public is, is doing with their money. Medvedev was a favorite to win that match. He didn't win a set. What uh, did you make of the final? Yeah, you know, I think – we, at the beginning of the tournament, we had our first podcast, you know, you know, after the first week and we talked about Djokovic and that, that abdominal injury, that muscle injury that he diagnosed. And it was, it was a big question whether or not, you know, that was going to be affecting him, if that could, you know, derail his, his quest for, for number nine in Australia. And I think um, in the final, he just, after everything he's been through, I mean, after the year, uh, even you know going back to the U.S. Open and and uh, the French Open, I I think he really needed this. And if there was any place for him to win, it was here. And I'm not sure anything Medvedev did would have uh, stopped him. You know, I, I it just now, of course, it adds to Djokovic's major hall overall. And for him, there really is no place like Melbourne, um, even after all the different obstacles he had to go through. Um, I think this was, this is, if, if you were Djokovic, this is how he planned it out. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. 
From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. If uh, we we were talking about this, um, I got uh, two things I'll I'll steal from our sort of tennis channel group chat. Uh, One of them was, if you're Medvedev, do you say to yourself, hey, great. I beat Rublev and I beat Tsitsipas and I'm going to another major final and Novak in Melbourne is almost at the level of Nadal in Paris, too good. Hey, I'm ranked number three in the world. I just turned 25 years old. Life's good. Or do you say, boy, I really was gearing up to win this thing. I thought I had Djokovic's number. He was a little bit injured. I was on this 20 match win streak. Last time I made a major final, the 2019 U.S. Open, I pushed Nadal deep into a fifth set, and I really got outclassed in my final. When, when Medvedev takes inventory of this event, uh, what, are, what are his emotions, and uh, to what extent is he proud versus disappointed? And, um, the second, well, why don't we do that first, and then I'll give yeah. you the second uh, topic we were discussing. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting perspective. I think I go back to, to what I said right at the beginning, which is his – you know, post-match interview, and he he was asked about the big three and and Djokovic and everything. And I think that perspective might um, give us some insight into how he'll walk away from this. Of course, I think if you're talking about um, straight match statistics and just if he he looks back at how he played, um, he'll he'll be frustrated. But I think when he looks at it overall, um, and he really understands the dominance and and the the gravity of nine Australian Opens. I I think he is sort of kind of shrugging his shoulders and and just saying, you know what, too good, like you said. What what are your thoughts? I think there's a a collective low threshold now for for moral victories. And it's sort of like, you know what, God God bless these three guys. And I think before we talk about the shortcomings of everyone else, we just need to acknowledge how good they are. Sometimes that gets shortchanged. Better than all Djokovic are just absolutely you know we, we say generational but there's three of them in one generation but they're just tremendous at what they do and they are tremendous mentally and they are tremendous in terms of their organization during matches and they conduct their careers like professionals like let's let's give these guys their due before we start picking apart the competition but I think we're at the point now as fans and I think this trickles down to the players where you know what enough of the moral victories enough of the consolation prizes are you going to take one of these guys down or not and we've all sat through i'm getting closer and i feel like i made some progress this tournament and i'm pleased with how i competed novak was just too good rafa was just too good i think we're all at the point of like is someone going to step up and take one of these guys down or is everyone just playing for second place here and i think that redounds to the players and my suspicion is, especially Medvedev, who seems much more of a sort of a, a plain speaking realist, maybe than other players. <laughs> I, I, th- I think he says, listen, I, I didn't come here to get a second place trophy and playing as well as I did to see it just kind of go to hell in the final. And also the way, you know, he lost that for, you know, tight first set, five all. Everyone's, you know, they're holding serve and a couple of shots here and there. Djokovic really did what he does so well and almost stole that first set. And then 
Medvedev just completely retreated. So I, I think some of it is a result and some of it is the fact that he just didn't compete particularly well in the final. He lost that first set. It was all, it all went very quickly too. I mean, some of this is about uh, the you know, lack of ball kids to help you towel off. But for, for Novak Djokovic, the, the 30 ball bounce between serve Novak Djokovic to play a match in a major final that was only about two hours that's really remarkable. So I, I think some of it, to, to your question, I think Medvedev is disappointed. And I think some of it is he didn't leave with the big trophy. And some of it is the way he competed and didn't even get a set. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the other question that we talked about, which was a bit of a hypothetical, was I, I think we all kind of missed this storyline a little bit. Was A lot was riding on this for Djokovic. If, if he doesn't win, he you know, loses the event that he's always counted on winning. He's no longer the defending champion it will have meant that he didn't make any inroads on this. You know, it would have been still 2017, maybe even 2117 and Nadal won. He wouldn't have made these, these goat inroads. The French Open is next, which is the event where he was, you know, b- barely mustered a fight against Nadal. This, this was a really big tournament for him. That is, as you say, um, you know, Mel- Melbourne is his, his second home and this is where he's won half of his majors, but he really needed to win this event. And you can only imagine when he had that abdominal injury against Taylor Fritz, you can only imagine what was going through his head, which is not just, boy, now this is imperiled, but the French Open is next and Nadal's likely to now take a four major lead over me. And suddenly, his, historically, the US Open looms larger. It will have been, you know, then it would have been 18 months in between majors when he's supposed to be in the prime of his career. All, all of which is to say is, I think we all shortchanged how big a win this was for Novak Djokovic and now how he goes forward. He's, he's back within two of the all-time race. He's now won nine Australian Opens. He's only solidifies his number one ranking. This was really a, a big win for Novak Djokovic, uh, especially given what happened in his last two majors. For sure. It makes me think about uh, something you wrote in your your mailbag this week, which was uh, the longer that the big three reign and the older that the rest of the field gets, the more pressure is put on the challengers, not the champions. And I, I, I totally agree. And I think that's why for Medvedev, it's, he walks away from this match. Yes. Being disappointed. Yes. Being frustrated with himself, but the, the pressure uh, in that match, particularly, I think, was on him more so than on Djokovic because while Djokovic needed this more than ever and it and to your point he he really um it would have been a big deal had he not gotten this title um I think that he was comfortable in that space I think when someone who's won so much in one place and and He's been there before so many times. And I think that ultimately, um, you know, Dominic Team has has talked about it a little bit, but that ultimately, I think, really helps these players. Djokovic knowing that he has five sets if he needs it, and he's been here before, and he's taken down, um, you know, some of his biggest challengers. I, I think that just, it's a, it's a little bit of an, an, a mental edge, I just think, that, that really gives them, the champions, the, the advantage. It's it's funny how, uh, and this is also part of being a champion, it's it's funny how Djokovic, and you know, Nadal is a master at this as well, how the hell they, you know, hey, the pressure's on him, it's not on me, I'm the underdog. Um, it's funny how in the <laughs> run-up to the match, uh, 
Djokovic sort of was, was happy to pass off his opponent as the favorite. Hey, look, I've got nothing to lose. Uh, I could retire tomorrow and it's a great career. Um, That's such I, a I mental think, exercise though for mm-hmm. them, I think. And, I mean, Oh, totally. I mean, part of this is uh, part of this is kind of organizing and just sort of managing the situation. But part of this also is at some level, you know, and Nadal is a king at this too. Athletes tell themselves narratives and really, I think in a lot of cases, believe them um, that are in, in furtherance of their career, that are in service of their career. And if, you know, Nadal thinks every Every opponent is he's he's one bad service day away from getting knocked out of the tournament, and he's convinced himself that the guy on the other side of the net is always you know he's he's going to be lucky to beat this guy, and it's it's served him very well. And we saw Djokovic doing a bit of the same thing. And I think the way you manage, discuss, and have a relationship with physical injury is part of that too. I mean, I'm not sure it didn't help Djokovic at some perverse level that he was playing hurt. And could always say, you know, it wasn't about my tennis, it was about my abdominal muscle, or I'm going to concentrate on not on the situation and not even on the opponent, but I'm going to really pay attention to my body. I mean, I think the way athletes deal with injuries is part of this, too. I mean, I also think you mentioned a big element to all this, which is, we say this all the time, but it doesn't, you know, doesn't, doesn't make it less so. This best of three versus best of five, it's, it's almost two different sports. I mean, it's almost like we need to just, divide these into two buckets and you know i know no offense to these events but great you can take down djokovic in a best of three indoor match in london but you know w- w- wake me when you get him in a major and same with you know great that you can that diego schwartzman beats nadal in rome it's it's a great achievement but that ain't the same as doing it in a best of five match i think that's what these guys do i mean that's the luxury they've built is that they they have the same mentality. Sure, go ahead, beat me in Rome. Sure, that's fine. Well, best of three, uh, you know, you've got your hometown crowd behind you in some lead-up tournament, great. But when it comes down to, you know, my turf in this best of five, I think they've, they understand that advantage. And um, it's, it's become really clear. And I don't think, I think the other players, because it's been discussed and it's, it's out there, I think they realize it too. And, and, you know, maybe it's it's putting extra pressure on them, like we said. He uh, is really good at best of three matches. Naomi Osaka. <laughs> how's, that? how's that for a transition? Um, good one. You know, obviously, we, we do not have to worry about best of five on the women's side, even, even though, and maybe this is a discussion we have in another time, um, I, I rather like best of three, uh, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe we need to have a, a bit more discussion about women playing best of five. I think they're certainly up to it. Physically, um, I mean, it wouldn't, wouldn't be my preference, but I, I am getting less and less, uh, you know, more, more and more open-minded as, as we go. Um, but let's talk about Naomi Osaka, who, um, you know, we, we talked, you and I talked, uh, Jamie, after the Serena match. And I think one of the comments we talked about was Naomi Osaka t- t- took that match and it was four all in the second set. She played a really lousy game and then didn't lose another point. But I, I don't think Naomi Osaka played the match of her life to beat Serena. She, you know, she double faulted eight times. I mean, that's, that's two games worth of double faults. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't necessarily think she played top shelf. I mean, it was, it was very functional and pragmatic and, and it was, she was able to prevail without a whole lot of drama, but I don't think she even played her best against Brady in the final. 
and yet here she is. She's won four of her last eight majors. I think rank, rankings be damned. It's pretty obvious she's she's the queen of women's tennis right now. What what do you make of her ascent? Um, what do you make of her performance on uh, in the final? She proved in Australia, and I'm certainly over the last few tournaments and few months that she is as dominant a player um, has been over the last two three years. Um, you know, we we talk about women's tennis all the time and how much it contrasts to the men's side with the big three dominating everything. And with the women, we've seen so many first-time uh, major winners. We've seen so many people rise to the top that out of nowhere or, you know, outside the top 10, top 20. And with Osaka, I think she's slowly but surely saying, basically, as you said, I'm number one. I am no one can beat me and i think her next sort of task is going to be of course to win on on the grass and and to capture wimbledon but i think this is going to be the start of her um almost earning that untouchable badge if you will i think she really proved that she she she's matured she's proved that she's comfortable in the spotlight she's proved that she can handle pressure especially against um you know someone like serena who she idolizes so there was a lot of different challenges she faced in in this tournament and i think overall it just encapsulates how much how how dominant she's been over the past few years i i almost feel bad for her because now she she has this takedown of serena she wins her fourth major she's 23 years old she wins without playing her best, and she gets her due. But then also, I, on Sunday, I, I had a former player text me, like, mark my word, she's coming after Serena's record, meaning Osaka's got 20 more of these in her. Um, you know, we, um, I, I think it was, um, it was in one of the press conferences, the, in the transcripts, you know, Mats Volander already has her into double digits, and we're already thinking, like, you know, but boy, if she can uh, replicate this on clay, we have our next double-digit major champion. Uh, you know, it, it, she had a she had a nice response to that, which is kind of like, guys, easy. I'm, let's talk about number five and not number ten. Right. But um, but I do think there's there's a real sense across tennis that there's a new sheriff in town, and we we do this every time, right? I mean, and it's it's Garbina Muguruza, and it's I mean, I remember Svetlana Kuznetsova won the U.S. Open, and I think it was the Euronic did, and I gotta check that, and in 2003 maybe. And it was sort of like, you may not know her name now, but trust me, this is a player that you're going to be hearing a lot from for the next 10 years. I mean, we always do this when we have a new champion, but this seems like a different level. Um, I, you know, I mean, the, you, the you, you wish her well, it's all there, but who knows? The hype train is rolling. And I mean, I hype think it's, it's certainly justified, but I, I agree, um, you know, with everyone to not jump from five to 10 to 20 to 23. Uh, you know, we've got a long way to go. And I think um, it's, it's going to happen regardless, but I think there are many challenges ahead for her, but that doesn't take away from what she's proven, how much she's improved, how much she's matured and how much she's really growing into a player who seems like she will be at, you know, in, in this number one, number two spot for a while. And, and I think maybe in a, a year, two years or so, maybe the uh, overall state of women's tennis in terms of it being so, so many different number ones and major winners, maybe she becomes that, that standard figure at the top and the rest of the people are shuffling around. Who knows? 
Yeah, I, I think I think that's a good point too because I think a lot of this optimism, yeah, it's it's about her results and it's about four majors now and it's about you know beating Serena in straight sets and a big match and but I, I do think a lot of this is about this leap in maturity and the fact that um, she really has presented herself as someone who has the constitution to be a, a global superstar. She is someone who has the constitution of being number one in the world without turning into a diva or somehow, you know, um, somehow uh, doing things that are adverse to her, to her tennis. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there was, a, I don't know if you saw the clip going on, going around, uh, so, someone had posted the clip of her trophy presentation ceremony when she won Indian Wells um, in 2018. And, you know, she, she started out by saying this is going to be the worst speech ever. <laughs> and it was someone who, you know, clearly was not especially confident or comfortable in, in the public situation like that. And you compare that to her her speech and her graciousness and her, her press conferences in Australia. And I think a lot of the optimism is as much about emotional growth as it is forehands and athleticism and, and having a big serve. I, I don't know if you caught the um, the, the Jen Jennifer, I, <laughs> I, I resist calling it a controversy, but the, the meme... Uh, Yes if, you, yes. if you caught that. Um, and yeah. to me, uh, you know, the, the pity of it to me was like, it was really a, a cool and, you know, it was, a, it was a poised move to make. She just didn't stick the landing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. And I think, you know, she, she tweeted after the fact, you know, like, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I did that. And I, I, I mentioned this last time, but, you know, it's, it's kind of endearing in a way. Um, you know, I think some people thought it was, a, a dig and she was really, you know, digging the knife in, but I, I don't think it was, I think it, it might've really just been a, a slip, you know, something she, she didn't realize she did, but um, it, it just goes to show you kind of how, again, how, how normal she is and she's, she's really relatable. And I think that will only help her going forward as she kind of climbs this ladder and continues to win and continues to, be in the spotlight you know I mean we've seen it with so many players and of course Serena and and the big three and they have more than ever Sharap Hope I mean there's so many people who have um you know become as as global and as uh you know transcending of stars as I think she's on her way to and she's still so young so a lot more to see and to come from Osaka I believe it's really interesting too because None of these are the same. Um, you know, I, I did a piece for Tennis Channel during the tournament about Jennifer Capriati, who won 20 years, you know, in, in 2001, and it was this great redemption. Um, you know, she, she was 14 years old. I mean, that's a, that's a full decade almost younger than Naomi Osaka, who was more than a decade younger than Serena. Um, so, you know, a 14-year-old is not analogous. And Serena Williams had a ton of challenges and pressures, but she also had a, a big sister there who could, who could cushion that. And other players have had sort of national pressures and, and Maria Sharapova one way she, you know, she, she didn't make any meaningful headway against Serena. So no one really saw her. She, she ended up winning, you know, whatever we She won five majors, won the career slam, but no one really saw her as the number one player because there was always Serena Williams who absolutely owned her head to head. I mean, all of these circumstances are different, but, between the sort of tri-nation, I mean, Naomi Osaka is really this, this multinational star, and there's an element of culture, and there's an element of race, and now we have, thanks to you know, what happened in August, there's this 
social justice component. It, it really is, I mean, they're, they're all unique sets of circumstances. She is going to have both advantages and challenges that no other player has had, but I, I just think she's really emerged in, you know, if, if, you, put, if, if you were buying stock in a, a, never mind a tennis player, in a professional athlete right now, um, boy, is Naomi Osaka poised well on, on every dimension for, uh, for the future. She just, yeah. I mean, she seems, she seems there. She's a commercial success. Her athleticism is tremendous and only gets better. Her win-loss record, I mean, she hasn't still lost a match. And I mean, the, the last match she lost was at Fed Cup to Sarah Tariva Tormo in, um, you know, it was basically 12 months ago. So it's, it's all, uh, everything's, everything's coming up roses for Naomi. Yeah, I was going to highlight your on every dimension comment because I think it goes beyond the tennis, which um, we've seen and, and discussed with so many players that maybe they don't have that, call it a complete package, whatever you want to call it. But she really, there are so many different levels, like you said. So if, if she's a stock and you're looking at all the different um, you know parts of the business, I think that uh, you know for her, there's, there's a bright future on, like you said, on so many levels. Um, sidebar for two seconds. Were, yeah. you, were you reading at all about, about uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. and his, his signing with the Padres? Yeah, I mean, we, we had lots of stories on SI.com about it, or at least a few. Did, um, did, did, you, capture, did, you, did you catch that um, th there was a group that had basically invested, it's sort of like a venture capital firm, had basically invested in his career as if it were uh, as if it were a stock. I mean, I think this is my, my sidebar is sometimes we, we talk about athletes in terms of upside and, and payoff and it all seems a little, you know, and who's who buy, sell, hold, and it all seems a little bit crass. But here, here was a case where a prominent athlete actually was securitized and people who invested in Fernando Tatis Jr. are now being paid off literally. And it's not just an analogy. Um, I wonder if, uh, this isn't something that tennis could take advantage of because I think there are players, A, that could use the, what is an effect startup capital. There are players that could use angel investments. And for as often as we talk about, you know, oh, I want to put all my money on Felix or I, I want to load up on, you know, whatever, Coco Goff. Um, I wonder if there isn't a market like this for tennis players. It would be that's interesting. My, uh, that's my sidebar for the day. It would be interesting. It would, it would right? I think the, um, the, the company or, or the firm, um, they, they use like an algorithm, right? And it, it, it talks about the performance and the earning potential and everything. And so uh, it's interesting, of course, we always talk about the difference between team sport and an individual sport. And so for tennis, it would be, it would be really interesting for one, being an individual sport, two, such a global sport with so many uh, different players from all over the world. And, and three, because the structure of the tours and the majors and um, the, the scheduling, and we always talk about, uh, you know, how, how draining and how injuries are so common because of how long the, you know, the, the two week off season of tennis. I mean, so many things um, as compared to your example with, with baseball are so different. So it would be, it would be really interesting. Very, very uh, intriguing exercise for tennis. And, um, you know, and then the other thing I would say is uh, what, we, what we've seen vividly over the past year is players need the money. Um, you know, the same way that your entrepreneurial startup and that, uh, your tech idea needs financing as well. If you're not a top 10 player, I mean, I, I was, 
impressed, happy, and surprised by, for example, the big names that have been playing, uh, that, that played the simultaneous event last week at Melbourne Park, um, this, this Phillip Island trophy, and, you know, Sophia Kenyon and Andrescu and, you know, Petra Mardich, and sure, that was about matches, but also they're clearly players who are thinking in terms of, I, I haven't been paid a lot lately, I, I need these earning opportunities. Um, I think there are a lot of players that might be open to that idea, just because if, if you're not a top 10 player, you're, you're thinking about your finances and you might need, uh, you know, again, the, the equivalent of startup capital. Um, anyway, let's, uh, let's spin forward. We have a, uh, you know, we have a full, full slate of events uh, this week. We just had uh, the entry list for the, the Miami Open, which will go on. It will not be played on the big football stadium. It will have a significant reduction of prize money because of the drop in attendance. But the good news is, you know, there will be a, a big event. Roger Federer's scheduled to play. Nadal, Djokovic. I mean, uh, tennis persists. Any thoughts on uh, what the sport should look like, will look like, and uh, where, where this is going in the time of COVID before we get to uh, before we go get to the French Open, the next major? Yeah, it should be interesting. Um, you know, as you said, the the Miami Open will continue. They they won't be in in Hard Rock Stadium, but they will have fans I think is is what I read um I'm not sure how many but they will have fans so I think it's it's going to be interesting obviously the, the U.S. Open was completely without fans and so um as the as the tour continues on in the spring and as we you know gear up for the majors and I think as these players travel more and as the you know during the summer there's a lot of back-to-back -back tournaments I think it's just going to be um you know, I think as we see with other sports with, you know, you've got people on the COVID reserve list or, um, you know, so-and-so is, is in quarantine or whatever it is. I think we're going to start to see some of that um, on the tour as, as players continue to travel. And I think um, one of the big points that is also interesting with tennis is just that everyone's sort of on their own. You know, the, the, the team plane is not flying to the Miami Open. Um, I'm sure a lot of players will travel together coming from the same places as they normally do. But um, that lack of that, that team experience and then that team safety, uh, I think, will be an interesting factor as, as the schedule kind of moves on through, throughout this year. We can only hope that uh, Pfizer and Moderna keep doing their thing because, uh, I mean, the other, the other point there is just different players come from different countries with different right. COVID rates and different policies and different events are held in different countries with different COVID rates and different policies. Um, so yeah, it'll, you know, I, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens when we get to, to Western Europe. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens at the, I mean, the French open is it's, it's on the books. It's going to happen. I think it's just a question of circumstance. And I think the same to some extent at, at Wimbledon as well. Will there be, you know, we, we did not, and neither did ESPN broadcast from Melbourne. There was, uh, you know, obviously not a full complement of fans. I don't know when we will have a full complement of fans. I don't know. I don't know how you feel about even the, the U.S. Open. I don't know, Jay. I mean, you, you and I live, you and I live in the area. Are we six months away from, uh, you know, eight, 800,000 fans over 14 days going to a tennis event? I don't okay. know. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about that in, in terms of the Olympics, which, of course, is still – 
I guess in the balance, although um, as as far as we know so far, it's it's still on. So I think that's the other big thing on the tennis calendar that always um, impacts tournaments and players' schedules and and decision making. And so um, again, I, I'm not sure. I am a little bit hesitant about um, the Olympics and and attending only because of what we've heard in terms of quarantine periods and. Uh, Sort of restrictions for for people um you know for media people at least um but also for athletes so i don't know um it was very strange to see see fans in australia but um you were taking that with a grain of salt so to speak because knowing the situation there versus here so um i don't know six months is a long time but uh i'm not sure if a full us open with fans is is the best approach at least at least from for now <laughs> we will uh we will have someone on from the usta next week and we'll, we'll talk about that i also think um real quick as we close up and uh await our next zooms I, I do think the olympics will be really interesting to see which tennis players show up and which don't um mm -hmm. i heard from from an agent that some players are trying to have you know, the Olympics are included sometimes in, in contracts and in endorsement contracts. They expect players to play the majors and the Olympics, um, e even without, uh, I mean, e even though you can't necessarily have branding and passages that you ordinarily would. Uh, but why did tennis players play the Olympics? I mean, for, for different reasons. And sometimes, you know, tennis players are the flag bearers and sometimes, uh, you know, it's, it's patriotism. But I think a lot of it is for the experience and for the camaraderie and for the, uh, you know, it's just the, the Olympics are so different from a run of the mill tour event. Well, if you can't have fans and you're going to have all these COVID protocols and exactly. again, the, the vast majority of the Japanese population doesn't even want the Olympics to be staged. Um, this is not going to be the, the fun, happy. Exactly. S Sydney, Athens, London, to some extent Rio games. This is going to be a different kind of Olympics. And I wonder, you know, does, picking a name out of the hat, you know, does the Serena Williams really want to go through this given the absence of fans and given, uh, you know, that the athlete's village is not going to be the athlete's village in, in COVID times. So it's going to be interesting to see what, you know, a, a year ago we were all talking about eligibility and, and which players could possibly get left off. And it was just an assumption that sort of every player, um, I think Dominic team, notwithstanding, you know, every top player was going to show up. I don't know if that's going to be the case in 2021 um we shall see anyway uh jamie always a pleasure um i know you you have to run i have to run uh but good to catch up and um let's do another one of these next week definitely sounds good thanks so much all right thank you to jamie as always uh for her conversation thanks to you for listening um again we will have a, a usta guest next week um but keep the suggestions coming. Um, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe, leave a review. It always helps. And uh, have a good week, everyone. Take care.